Hello and welcome to episode 355 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 20th of January 2020, only a few hours after the swearing in of a new and vastly improved president of the United States. I'm Marsh Davis and I'm joined tonight by our very own great experiments, each gone terribly appallingly awry. I talk of none other than Tom Senior. Good day, everyone. And Chris Thurston. Hi and sorry. How does it feel to uh, unclench your jaws, maybe maybe just a little, for the first time since 2016? That's a big question, Marsh. I'll give a stupid answer. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I think I uh, I very much actually did feel a kind of a little a little weight lift or something be taken out of the bag you carry around, and obviously the size of the bag and the weight of its contents vary tremendously person to person. And I'm ever conscious of you know my own ways in which I'm fortunate in that regard but as I'm carrying this bag I was very uh conscious that I felt happy for my American friends to see at least boring normalcy swam back in if not something more hopeful and I thought there were tinges of that and this was especially um heartening as the uh bucket I live in sank deeper into the sea <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the abyss Chris <laughs> exactly um but no, I did. I was talking to a friend today about this phenomena and how exactly how guarded to be or not. And I think I saw the full span of those reactions on mm. Twitter. And I think in some ways it's a bit like, yeah, to continue that analogy, everyone's carrying a whole bunch of different competing, fairly weighty burdens at the moment. And something like this, I don't know how much of that alleviates for the average person, but it does feel like in addition to whatever else is in my bag, there was a really jangly set of loose screws that made noise every time I moved and they're finally gone. And that's kind of nice. How are your screws, Tom? Uh, a little calmer. Jangly? Uh, they're, they're, they always jangle, but um, yeah, I, I'm just kind of, uh, I'm trying not to, I felt a twinge of hope and quickly extinguished it. Because, oh, yeah. you know, that, that's... <laughs> Get rid of that shit. Yeah, you just can't be building yourself up like that. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to um, the former president lurking on the sidelines like some shit Batman villain, uh, just kind of just whipping people up and making things horrible mm. for our friends in America. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will say, it felt sort of notable. I don't know. I'm not a political commentator and shouldn't be, but... It felt notable to have white supremacy named explicitly as a threat yeah. in an inauguration speech by an incoming American president. And I think, I may be wrong about this, but I think it was the only like human threat named um, in that in that context in terms of an adversary. You know, the other the other uh, sort of challenges that were called out were very much well. That's not quite true because obviously systemic racism, which is the other side of that coin, is definitely from that uh, same uh, issue, but. You know, climate change, the pandemic, etc. Um, you know, I, I think even in the like in the Obama years, the, the there would be those references to Americans' foreign adversaries and the war on terror mm. and so on. And to see that absent and in its place, an acknowledgement of like the domestic threat and where that was located, I thought was like mm. notable. It was it was good to see it named for all the talk of unity and the importance of that. And I can agree with the importance of that to also to have that. Uh, uh, tempered by an actual acknowledgement and a naming of the real the real uh, threat, um, I thought was was good. Uh, podcast voice. <laughs> Our enemies are 
white supremacists and shitty microbes. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> those other big problems at <laughs> the time. I have Good to job. say, though, as, as a Brit, uh, I am happy and relieved for America, obviously. Um, but as a Brit, I do feel like it's sort of like the end of Thelma and Louise if Thelma just bailed out of the car before it went <laughs> off the cliff. Yeah. And we're left spinning into, into thin air going, Thelma! <laughs> I, I agree. I had exactly the same conversation with an American friend recently where I felt like, you know, for, for four years, more or less starting at the same point, but obviously with history going back much further, both of our, both Britain, the United Kingdom and, and, and America were on this race to discover new bottoms to the barrel. And, <laughs> and like, um, America has chickened out of that race now, like pulled its ripcord, uh, <laughs> called uncle, like they're out of the game. And it's like, I think what this means is we have won and therefore we can stop playing. And I don't believe that message is quite penetrated yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we maybe like we don't need to also go for the record is what I'm saying. But hey, uh, I don't I don't make the rules. How about we talk about some less consequential news in the mm. form of video game chat? Let's do it. Oh, thank God. There's been a video game released today. Wow. It's Hitman 3. Um <laughs> Which is notable, I, I guess. I haven't, uh, haven't played it. Uh, yep, no, they're I haven't right. played the previous one. So, well, uh, what the people come to us for? Opinions about Hitman fail. What the people don't come to us for? Uh, assessments of the state of Western democracy tick. Um, <laughs> uh, Just happy to help. Yeah, uh, I'm actually really sort of um, excited about this because last year, the start of my kind of lockdown gaming kind of thing hitman 2 and going back through all the levels and playing well playing hitman 1 through to hitman 2 all the way at the end was like quite a nice escape at the start of that because if nothing else they're like bond films um sort of holiday media i don't think they're necessarily advertised as such but i think hitman is a series of trips to kind of larger than life you know slightly um or very much escalated takes on real world places and the uh, uh, where you'd make fire extinguishers fall on people's heads, basically. Um, and I'm actually very excited about this because I also, being completely on the ball of the gaming news, had no idea this was coming so soon or that it was Epic exclusive or indeed anything about it. And to see it getting like 90 reviews in places and doing very well, that's nice. It's nice that there's a game. It's good, isn't it? It's good. It's kind of the only thing coming out, is it? Right? Like, yeah, this is it, right? <laughs> this is what we've, I mean, it's great. And also, I, I like that um, after some faffing around, apparently that you're going to be able to incorporate Hitman 2 levels into Hitman 3 and just have yeah. a sort of grand old Hitman package of that. I mean, that, that's hundreds of hours right there. Grand um, old package. A grand, another grand old package. <laughs> um, they do seem to have beefed that up slightly. So this one's Epic exclusive. And they did a blog, I think, when it launched to say that your Steam ownership of hitman one and two where it's previously available would not transfer to these to this new bundle um this big package um and i think it was pc games N ran a story about that and then tim sweeney himself responded to say we didn't want it to be that way we're looking into it so i don't know i think you know as long as it's possible like they, they kind of fix that retroactively it's not a huge pain in the ass but it is a bit of a sort of it certainly was a bit of a bump in the road of me buying it immediately. Just the fact that I have to load the Epic launcher more than anything else. 
is a different button. I don't even have that on my quick bar. How the hell am I supposed to find it? <laughs> it uh, it's a lot of gigabytes as well. I keep on running into this problem now. I've got a new PC that was supposed to be arriving like right now. Uh, but because of, you know, the, the chipset shortages, yeah. um, which is a very first world problem, uh, is, uh, this thing is probably going to arrive in March or April because the, mm. the way the RTX cards are just completely, you know, the supply is so short at the moment. And I was kind of waiting for that. I was going to deploy that on Hitman and see it in all its beautiful glory. Because they're beautiful games. The, the modern Hitman games are gorgeous. Like the, the yeah, environments yeah. are beautiful. Um, and that was, that was going to be my whole my whole month. Mm. <laughs> and now I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same boat. I had a new PC at the start of December and I don't have an ETA. I'm just going to, it's going to arrive when it arrives. I just want yeah. it to be in the queue, basically. Yeah, likewise. Um, but I also have been putting off a lot of games until that is a thing. Um, and I don't know how wise that's going to be, but we'll see. We'll see. I can sit here and do nothing forever. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> I look forward to um, playing Valhalla. I've play played loads of Valhalla on PS4 Pro, which is very nice. Mm. And I'm enjoying the game almost in spite of myself, really, um, just because it's a very good sort of mop-up-the-map type game, and it's very pretty, um, if not at all England. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was hoping to get that on PC, crank it all up to Ultra. And just sort of like really, you know, just bathe in that Ubisoft detail. Mm. Mm, yeah, I, I was I was definitely saving Cyberpunk for the same sort of oh, yeah, reasons. Although um, the the good news is that the uh, <laughs> timeline for the delivery of my PC is exactly as vague <laughs> as, as the roadmap that was put out for Cyberpunk's ongoing. I, I think it's going to be. Um, re I think I'm going to receive my PC at some point in either yet the yellow times or the hashed line times, probably before. <laughs> uh probably before the end of the jpeg like anywhere in that span of time <laughs> is is fine honestly love that diagram <laughs> i do too yep i will do the same there was a there was another news this week um although i think it was at the end of last week so obviously it feels like it might have taken place in another century um but it was the the news of lucas arts games i think that might be the new name uh being resurrected and mm, it's uh, a number of film games oh lucas film games thank you <laughs> yeah, exactly. um and uh, a number of um disney-based collaborations with game studios that had not previously um been part of the sort of S S star wars fold or the other disney properties uh excited in a star wars game not made by ea uh, uh, yeah so um that's my noise here's what i'd say about this Star Wars Squadrons was really good. Jedi Fallen Order was pretty good. Like, I liked it quite a lot. I think it's, you know, it's not a From Software mm. game that it quite wanted to be, but it's not far off. And it's probably one of the most concerted efforts by uh, a non-From Software developer to capture that uh, formula and do something else with it. And so the notion that uh, EA um, is the reason, the sole reason that Star Wars games haven't been what people have wanted them to be, um, I think is is meme more than truth uh yeah which is ever the that, useful yeah. distinction like my um my instagram uh like recommendation page whatever you call it the search page where it just throws whatever it thinks you like uh is exclusively um star wars prequel memes for teenagers because it has accurately assessed my mental age um and <laughs> <laughs> 
And a lot of that lit up with like, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead. EA is gone. Thank God Ubisoft are here to deliver a less <laughs> calculated experience. Um, and uh, and I don't think that's wholly the case. As I say, particularly calling reference to the fact that you get, you know, uh, Respawn or uh, who is it? Uh, EA Montreal, I believe. Um to do things and interesting things happen. It just matters who's, you know, being asked to make a game, what freedom they're being given uh, to do so. To be honest, that with that in mind, this feels like more existing in, in sort of continuity with, I think, Disney uh, allowing interesting games to exist again. You know, famously when Disney got Star Wars, um, they canned things like Star Wars 1313, which I think was supposed to be a Boba Fett game. Um, and all the other kind of AAA kind of, you know, uh, traditional games of the kind in favor of, say, I basically said at the time, like all Disney properties. So from now on, will just be manifest to social games and things like that, because that's where our focus needs to be. And I think that sort of, uh, that is clearly relaxed. You can see that across every part of their handling of their big franchises at the moment. They're, they're obviously allowing weirder things to exist and that bodes well. In fact, actually, the part of this I find hardest to summon the enthusiasm for is the notion that Ubisoft are making a Star Wars game. I mean, I like plenty of Ubisoft games, but that doesn't tell me anything to be excited about, right? Like, uh, sure, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's I was again talking to a friend about this the other day. It's good if it's nice. It's nice if it's good. <laughs> you know, I'll probably play it, but yeah, they definitely have the resources to deliver a kind of ea level of soul spectacle i think that's what i really enjoyed about the battlefront games in particular hmm. they looked and sort of sounded incredible uh, and the second one in particular and i absolutely hated the card system loot boxes were obviously very controversial but had a really fun single play campaign actually um just as a kind of star wars fan to just rock through it and enjoy the you know that geometry yeah just rendered in a gorgeous engine looking amazing um i'm pretty sure ubisoft could match that uh though i'm not i don't want to climb up to the top of a Wookiee in sync yeah, exactly uh, <laughs> to reveal an area so i don't know how this fits into one of ubisoft's templates but I, I'll, I'll be fascinated to see it's quite it's, it's quite exciting what um what uh animatronic star wars creature would be the replacement of your eagle slash crow oh just a giant giant jumping rancor mm. <laughs> sort of right. belly flopping his way uh across the landscape or minoc maybe hmm yeah, I think, so this is an interesting thing. I think one of the reasons that it, um, EA was able to do some interesting things with Star Wars more recently, this is a bit of a guess, but DICE did a lot of work to basically create like a big library of very, very good cinema-referenced Star Wars assets. Now, I'm going to go off on one of my boring tangents here about why project management is interesting, but but like clearly, like once they had like probably some of the best 3D models of Atats and Snowspeeders and X-Wings in the business, that becomes like a little toolkit to go away and make games with. And I wonder if that mm. stuff will get shared because I feel oh, like... I'm if, sure it would. If, yeah, yeah, but if, you know, it's kind of interesting at that point because that's, you know, labor that has been done by EA, basically. Yeah, who owns it is who the owns interesting that? thing. Yeah, uh, it is interesting. Or is it? Um, the and, yes. Yeah. And I so, wonder how many of, for example, the Mandalorian's CG assets are actually borrowed from games. Uh, yeah. I yes. suspect some, at it's, least. I mean, that's, I mean, the Mando... Um, I mean, it's using the Unreal Engine. Unreal yeah. Engine, yeah. So um, kind of, maybe they should start Lucas Game Films in order to um, <laughs> fully, 
<laughs> fully, uh, you know, take advantage of that. Yeah, I've really, see what happens. really enjoyed the Mandalorian. It was good, isn't it? Yeah, I really like it, and it, uh, it's kind of yeah, it's sliding more and more into kind of uh, extended universe stuff. But uh, it's still great. It's great. It's so well produced. It's beautiful. It's so yeah. This is a tangent, but I think this is the other thing that will be interesting about what comes next for the games is which audience are they going to chase? Because Squadrons was a sign that they were willing to chase a nostalgic audience. And I think I've said this before on the podcast, but I feel like the story of like big franchise pop culture over the last couple of years is going from the assumption that you can't and maybe shouldn't, or the, the notion that giving fans exactly what they want is complicated and that you must complicate it in the telling of your stories. You shouldn't just deliver on expectations. And maybe through a combination of like extensive backlash and culture war and um angry nerds you end up in a situation where we sort of are at a point now it's like no actually you can just have what you want but we're going to try and do it in at least a relatively classy way and i think the remarkable thing about mandalorian season two is that it manages to be quite a good watchable well, good watchable show while also pulling like triple duty as a sequel to the dave filoni cartoons as a engine by which things from the 90s that uh millennials and uh, young gen x's care about get reintroduced to star wars canon and a, a basically an apology in making for the rise of skywalker as far as i can tell in terms of <laughs> plot threads is setting up in order to explain glaring plot holes and like the weird thing about star wars is how inevitably meta it ends up becoming particularly when you don't just wipe the slate clean and say this is for a new audience and the games ping pong between those extremes. Oh no, and the hot take police close in. I will end on this. <laughs> I think that's going to be the most important kind of signifier is like, what decision are they making? Are they are they trying to make something to call back to the history of Star Wars games? If so, they'll certainly please old fans. And if they do it well, then it's nice to reintroduce that to a new audience. Or is it this sort of like dogged march into the future, at which point I feel like that's a good thing. But you're never gonna. They're not gonna lose the moaning. It's just that the focus of that yeah. ire will become more dispersed. Yeah. John Favreau is a wizard. I think. Yeah, I think. I he mean, is. he's done a like exactly as you say. He's done this a remarkable job of pulling uh, this thing along, despite many competing directions it could have gone in, and uh, and somehow. It, I mean, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, and I never felt like it obtrusively pandered to an audience that w- was obviously not me. You know, and, and mm. it was. <laughs> so <laughs> they did a good job of concealing all that pandering that it was doing, uh, which is great. It's a title con- concept artist's playground, that show as well. Like mm. The, mm. every single base they fly over, the ships just incidentally fly in the background. Every, all of it is just as a sci fi nerd. It's like, oh, look at that. It's, I'll it's say this great. as well. Like, I went back and watched little bits of um, The Force Awakened recently, which makes it about a year and a half since I'd seen it. And I think post Mandalorian, um, it really shows up, I think the sequels generally, although I love The Last Jedi, but that mm. movie particularly as being like both quite anodyne in its designs, its production design, and also um, it really showcases what I would call like J.J. Abrams's specific lack of a sense of space or the continuity <laughs> between spaces. Like mm. every every action sequence he produces tends to be like a cool, like a cool, one cool visual idea in a container that can contain that thing with no real relationship to the thing that happens next or that happened before it yeah. and 
one of the things that's striking about the Mandalorian is like it articulates those changes. You know, it articulates lots of different. It can go through lots of different sort of like episodic feeling moods and themes, but it kind of articulates an interesting universe between all of them, and that is uh, better. Is what I'm saying. It's better than what the <laughs> <Yeah>. previous thing. <laughs> they did good instead. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. More. Yeah, that's that. TV. <laughs> They've also announced the uh, that. Uh, Indiana Jones will be given to Machine Games, formerly oh, yeah. the Wolfenstein remakes, uh, which I think is a really interesting pairing. I mean, there's some consternation um, that Machine Games, a studio uh, most recently known for making uh, a shooter game, would be too shootery for uh, Indiana Jones. But I, I don't know. I think that they have uh, a greater hinterland than simply the FPS. I think that because that they are... Um, a lot of them came from the studio that Starbreeze um, at a time when it was making the Chronicles of Riddick, and that's a game which is also a shooter but has a lot of um, breadth to it. Um, and I wonder what they will do with this. I think one of the things that I was uh, I, I'd be concerned about with any adaptation or even continuation of Indiana Jones is that having recently rewatched the first one, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in that which is uh, it cannot be totally excused for for harking back to uh, the cinema of yesteryear. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of caricaturish depictions of other nations. And obviously the entire thing of it is that <laughs> Indiana Jones is is stealing other nations' treasures, uh, which is a thing that kind of goes unaddressed. And also he's a pedophile, uh, which isn't great. Um, so I, I, but I think if any studio was going to... Uh, look at something uh, problematic and uh, find some way of making that interesting or saying something interesting about it. It might be Machine Games, whose you know, uh, mm. attempt at the Wolfenstein series does a lot to, to rehabilitate what was quite a stupid um, shooter and, and putting, uh, put a lot of heart and uh, progressive thought into it. Yeah, it's strange for uh, them to pick up a... It's strange to see people making uh, games based on movies that are just totally unmoored from the kind of movie release schedule like as far as i'm aware there isn't mm. a new, like a new indiana jones in production in yeah in there cinema. is oh is there well i mean uh, i don't know how far along in production it is but um harrison ford has yeah he's agreed to play oh my god Indy for another time <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> good i'm looking forward to see uh i, I, I mean harrison ford's great but um the, the man's melted he's too melted to be indy these days i think um <laughs> Uh, that's that was very mean, but uh, <laughs> this doesn't seem to be like a, a tie into that particular movie. I don't know. Maybe it is. Uh, I don't know. I, no I guess we, we we just don't know what the the actual kind of premise. Is. We don't even know if it's going to be first person, third person, whatever type of game it's going to be. I tell you what, though, having watched the first film again, there's a sequence in it in which uh, quite a lengthy sequence in which Indiana Jones is sort of uh, open world roaming, but in stealth. Um, through a dig site in Egypt. And during that time, he has to go undetected by the Nazis and also beat them to the sort of discoveries that they're searching for in the wrong place. Uh, you know, disguising himself as workers and diving through tents and generally keeping out of the way. I was thinking, well, if you know, if you're looking for an, another set of verbs to to replace simply gunning down hundreds and hundreds of Nazis, then actually a sort of uh, hitmanish open world stealth is is pretty a pretty good fit for that section. Be an interesting way of differentiating it from every other game series heavily inspired by Indiana Jones as well, because that feels like the elephant in the room. It's like 
the world isn't in want of games about that fantasy. And actually, indeed, the last time I think yeah. we spoke about it on the podcast was that time we we really put September 2018 to rights or whatever it was and talked about um, Tomb Raider and, um, you know, WoW's kind of matinee adventure outing and 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 so on. And there's obviously Uncharted and, and all the rest of it. And it's weird that there's like an Uncharted movie on the way at the same time as indie kind of mm. returns as a game. And so... I think one of the big questions is is that like what what do you I'm not saying that like Tomb Raider is the way to or Uncharted is the way to kind of enact um, you know Indiana Jones caper in a game but there does seem to be some consensus about what that means and so like yeah like is it open world stealth is it more of a shooter because they could do that like you say it's not the sum total of those movies but he does shoot a lot of Nazis you know, there are a lot of running action sequences in those films that could be done in the machine game style. Maybe not quite Wolfenstein, but something like that. Yeah. And in, in any case, I think the way, one of the ways, possibly even the only avenue they have to try and negotiate some of the inevitable uh, problems with that setting is to lean real hard into the Nazis, basically. Like, mm. Indy can't be the most, you know, the worst person in the room. In this room! <laughs> <laughs> Indiana Jones is kind of a weird relationship with the games because basically that's, uh, Tomb Raider is basically Indiana Jones. And then Uncharted was like, oh, we're just going to do Tomb Raider for the modern era. And and all of it is Indiana Jones. <laughs> so, yeah, do you want to make it the same game again? Or, but, right. Or with make a man with a hat on? Yeah. Um, yeah, which is I love Fate of Atlantis. That was a there's a really nice adventure game, and that will never happen. But um, yeah, it's just yeah. Do they? <laughs> just thoughts really. Just I mean, that, yeah. The um the machine games kind of like Starbreeze, uh, Starbreeze, Stardock. Which one is Starbreeze? Which? Starbreeze Legacy is, I think, in really like kind of physically interactive um environments like they've always been really good at um a sense of place and a sense mm. of kind of and i think that would be something to see brought to bear in those in right. those kinds of contexts particularly They're, yeah they feel very popular social environments as well you mm. go around talking to lots of people and uh, the interactions you have with them feel very credible in the chronicles of reddit games yeah exactly maybe that's the way to get away from the tomb raider thing a bit like not contraption filled tombs but you know the like you say the slightly more uh people being the challenge i guess rather than rather than pushing mm. blocks around to open big doors i don't know mm. like tom just don't know yeah don't it's know. good if it's nice <laughs> <laughs> it's nice if it's good oh yeah that should be our podcast catchphrase but it shouldn't what have you been playing chris oh boy oh boy um well so <laughs> it's been like I guess more than a month since I've done a podcast and in that time I thought about playing some different things well I will say this I did play uh, I played games where you uh, make run after run in an attempt to reach the, uh, the, the apex of a fantasy underworld gradually accruing power but strictly at a rate established by the developers um while uh effectively adorning my character with new abilities and this this game is called world of warcraft um, 
Oh, oh, a little third act switcheroo there. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I, I basically I have also played Hades, but the um, finally, um, WoW has become, and I didn't expect this, and particularly after what I had to say about it last time, like just the game I play now, um, and I don't think. Everything I have to say about it, and I don't want to go mega deep on this more than make a few points about where it's at, but like everything I have to say about it is to do with like, I think the role it can play in your life rather than trying to offer some grand verdict on, on World of Warcraft as a game, because it's, it's a fairly unique thing. There are obviously other long running MMOs, but you know, Shadowlands, the new expansion when it came out was the biggest pc release of all time until cyberpunk eclipsed it like a month later and so it's this massive active um uh theme park basically that has been continuously added to and evolved for you know the better part of almost two decades now that uh just sort of sits there at the periphery of this kind of hobby we have accumulating content and kind of drawing people in and i find it um, having sort of bounced off its previous expansion, which the new experience funnels you into as hard as I did, and obviously I talked about that on a previous podcast, I did end up persevering with it and spent uh, a good couple of weeks just plowing away through an entire, the, the previous expansion's worth of content, all of it, including all of the post-launch content, this sort of endless Saturday morning cartoon, which I liked a lot more, um, of places to go and stuff to collect and, and a game that was never really a challenge, just this sort of endless like funnel of like, you know, uh, activities and new things to see and little cutscenes to uncover and things to unlock for my character and looks to unlock that I found kind of enormously confident. It's like the ultimate sort of switching off game. And I say that guardedly because I'm also the kind of human being who is capable of just like eating an entire bag of hobnobs at once. <laughs> and I wouldn't necessarily say that that is like, I think that says more about me than it does about hobnobs. And, and I think this is, that, that is also true here. So I'm finding it hard to kind of pass the critical judgment here because like, is any of WoW's like writing or, or content like individually, like spectacular or noteworthy or I would point to? No. Is quantity a form of quality? Kinder. And like, there's something um, really sort of, I guess, comforting about being kind of swept away in something quite so kind of um, rich and full featured and drunk on its own supply in some cases, but very much sort of laid out for you. And I think it is, and I, I'll talk separately about the new expansion, which I think is good. It is in its own way, a clicker game, really. Um, you know, it's the same as the sorts of games that Pip gets a lot, a lot out of as well. It's a sort of set of activities that you tee up for yourself. And I think the quality of the status quo at any given time is how compelling are the uh, Skinner boxes that I'm engaging in today? And I, I think we're kind of past the point of poo-pooing that as like not game design because it's been years people love this stuff. It's game design. like, And so if, you know, the how aesthetically and and compelling is the current array of little tasks laid out for me to do every day and how interested I am, am I in the rewards and WoW is like supremely uh, over featured in that regard so much so that it, it becomes fun, it's fun to 
you know, dig into the new stuff and have new things unlock every week and go and go and find them. It's fun to jump into an old raid that was designed for 25 people with one other friend and blitz through it because you're massively overleveled and unlock a bunch of new, what would have previously been endgame stuff, mounts and armor and things that you can just put on your new character and transmogrify and use to build outfits. Like, that's fun too. Um, and I think it's really highlighted to me, and this is something that has been a side effect of this change in my my kind of idle gaming. It's really highlighted to me Destiny's particular struggles. And it's particularly highlighted to me, I think, how um, valuable um, the subscription model still is. It feels like the notion that you pay to keep a game servers on feels like that's that's gone, right? No one is expecting to pay have to pay for that anymore. But, you know, the 10 euro a month that WoW costs, once, once you've paid that, there's basically nothing in the microtransaction store. There's like 14 mounts, like, which is, which is nothing because there's probably more than 14 items on a given page of Destiny's store. And the, what that means is that the game is full of weird rewards. If you, if you see someone with a cool hat, you can say, where did you get that hat? And they will say, I got it uh, by doing this dungeon. And it was hard. And you go, cool, maybe I could do that. And then maybe you do. And that generosity of just stuff um, is a consequence of basically developers being paid another way. And that's really important because the reason you invest in these games is to accrue a big pile of cool things that you have momentarily invested value in. Does that mean that they have value independently? I don't know. Is the whole thing possibly a big old kind of sink to put your brain in when, when the outside is yelling? Maybe. But like um it's it really did it, it's highlighted the paucity of of content in destiny a game i otherwise love in quite an unflattering way and meant that i find destiny hard to go back to now because it seems feels so thin oh, wow. despite huh. its core loop the combat uh and its narrative being i think much better um that said, the thing I would say is that the new WoW expansion is genuinely um, really cool. It takes place in the sort of afterlife and there's a bunch of different big themed afterlives and none of them strike me as like wildly problematic, which uh, means they've hurdled the bar that I kind of set for them after the previous expansion. So good job. That's guarded if that wasn't clear. Um, but also like there's some cool ideas in it and there's tons of really interesting kind of little places to go and little mini experiences that are fun to dig into. Like WoW has like a baked in roguelike now, which is uh, called Torghast, the Tower of the Damned. And you enter it and um, you, in a given run, uh, you gain powers and ability modifiers that fundamentally change how your character works in kind of really interesting ways that tickle all of the things that normally tickle people about like ability set accruing roguelike type games like say the spire or or dead cells or hades even uh where you build a really broken version of your character and you're trying to get to the end and you unlock some rewards and the broader kind of thing it plugs into is wow's endlessly grindy end game but in and of itself it's a really fun little thing to do and like uh this last week they um, they had like a weekly timed set of new abilities that would be in the tower for like a limited amount of time. So you could go in and it was all about pets, beasts from hell. And I did a run where I respect my demon hunter to be a tank. And I ended up tanking for a dog that just by being alive would die. And, and whenever it died, it would detonate. <laughs> 
doing several thousand, several, you know, several hundred times its own health and damage. Sorry, no, several times all of its health and damage. And it kept buffing its health, but not buffing, but and then buffing the speed at which it died inevitably and created this bizarre game loop where my job went from trying to damage things myself to trying to stay alive so that my exploding dog could die enough time to kill everything in the level. Um, which is like <laughs> genuinely fun. It's one of those little stories. Like, and it's interesting to get that experience out of, of WoW, which is like in no other circumstances a game I would recommend to Tom Francis. You know, but that <laughs> but that that little story is like has a germ of like, you know, I don't know, Franciscan mechanics wang in it that <laughs> <laughs> might be, you know, like is is nice to find in a game like this. And the point of these things is not that they are like self-sustaining game loops. Um although I do think in I'm into WoW's endgame now, and I do think there's something really interesting about the structures they've created for endgame content and you know there is a real skill to getting good at it etc but the point is that like it just becomes this big toy box of, of little experiences you can dip into um with your friends or, or on your own that you come out with with a nice little reward and i found that very comforting if otherwise uh possibly not critically like thought provoking and I appreciate I'm saying that after having talk, spoken about it unbroken for what feels like half an hour. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I think those are the kind of games uh, I'm gravitating towards at the moment uh, because uh, I think our mental space communally has been taken up elsewhere. Uh, mm. Yeah. How, how did you? How did you? Um, did you experience it as a kind of social experience, Chris? Did you kind of solo it, or were you kind of very solo? Yeah. Uh, like, and I think I went a bit mad as well because, like, so they've really sped up leveling and that's very sensible of them. So it takes about probably between 16 and 20 hours to get to level 50, which is the cap. If you don't have the latest expansion, uh, that's the cap. If you just pay the monthly fee, basically, because it's, it's, it's not free to play because it's like free up to level 20, which is nothing, but you can pay the monthly fee and then you don't have to buy any of the previous expansions or the core game or anything like that. So if you pay the monthly fee, you can go up to level 50 and that takes about like, you know, 20 hours ish. And you can pick which expansion you want to do it in and with the time facing thing, which is really cool. And then you jump into the new expansion and the new expansion is about another 10, 12 hours to get to the new camp of 60. But I, I got to level 50, um, bought the new expansion so that I could keep gaining experience, but refused to go to the new expansion and instead stayed in the one I was doing and just did absolutely everything. When you're already at the level cap, you gain you only gain like 150 xp for completing a quest and it's like 190,000 xp to get to level 51 i managed to get to level 51 just by doing quests that gave me 150 xp and discovering new areas that gives you about 700 um over the course of about two weeks by myself um while one-shotting every mob because i was over leveled for it just because i wanted to see the daft Saturday morning cartoon endless fucking burning Legion storyline come to an end. So I played through what was effectively two years of post-launch content for the Legion expansion. And that was like, I did that mostly by myself and it took about 40 hours and I, that happened to me. And it now feels like a blur, even though it was about five weeks ago. And it's probably one of the purest, this is the thing. I feel like a lot of our lives is spent figuring out that this wasn't a waste of time. And by this, I mean, I'm gesturing at all of it. And so 
<laughs> that's my biggest test yet. You know, really went for it. And uh, I don't regret it. It's <laughs> like uh, I either really wasted two weeks or I got to the heart of what video games are, which is a series of colorful lights and mild challenges that make you feel better for a short amount of time. And you get to see a big purple man annihilate a chandelier with his eye beams at the end. It's quite striking. Uh, it's, it's the third lockdown and yeah. it's the worst one. <laughs> Uh, so I think like everyone, in, everyone could be forgiven for uh, get, just going jumping into a two-decade-old MMO every now and then, just to sort. I of live here up. now. Yeah, yeah, someone reminded me that like every time I talk about it in public, someone will say the words either Guild Wars Two or Final Fantasy Fourteen, which I think are both fine things to say to me. Um, but now I feel somewhat protective of my trash, my mass. You know, a mass market enormously profitable trash. Um, no, yeah. sir, that is not the debasement that I seek. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like I, I want a cold box of chicken nuggets and to hide <laughs> under the bed, and that's what I found. And and yeah, and I also played Hades, which I thought was pretty good. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. You said uh, a podcast ago um, that you, you feared Hades because uh, you were worried that it was going to uh, essentially put all progress in a sort of inevitable meta progression and you would find that unsatisfying. Yeah, I was How right, wasn't we... I? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, re I really admire um, a lot about Hades, particularly like, the art and the design and the music and the combat system. Like it's all very sick. I think it's probably um, Supergiant's best game uh, on the whole. Um, like it combines all the things they're good at and levels them all up at the same time, which is exciting because I think that game has been inconsistent in that regard. Right, the latest one isn't necessarily the best in every category. I think it probably is. Um, however, I think maybe related to the previous thing, like it did start to feel like a job as soon as I realized what I was actually being asked to do. Uh, as soon as right. I realized that it wasn't necessarily about becoming an ace at the combat system. Well, as soon as I realized that my, my sort of slow, steady improvements, the combat system, which I do like, were being outpaced in terms of their effect on my progress by just stuff I was unlocking yeah, yeah. based on time more than anything else. Um, it's funny because it's so similar to WoW in that regard. It's so similar to any MMO or any clicker game. Uh, where your engagement, your just steady engagement is the thing that it wants and that it rewards. And it rewards you with, you know, all art. Very, very shippable gods. Just fucking hella shippable. <laughs> like ev 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 everyone horny, but in a in a in a sort of classy way. Um I've is... seen some of the slash fiction I have. Well, not yet. I've been avoiding spoilers. Uh <laughs> um and is that bad? No, it's not. I, I, it, like, is it a crime that the game engaged me with tricks? I don't know. Probably <laughs> not. I guess what I mean is, mm. I think, um, but I did sort of get this feeling where it was like, I don't, I didn't want to go down the road laid out in front of me all the way to the end. I kind of just wanted to see all of the things and then finish it. And that's obviously like, and obviously they account for that. You've got the God mode thing, which, which kind of allows you to cruise through to the end in that way. That has a fight with the part of my brain that demands to do things the 
I don't know, quote unquote, proper way. I feel like all of these like little issues or these little snags with game design kind of expose unresolvable arguments rather than actual problems about like you know what is the correct way to you know to a uh, correct quote-unquote way to appreciate something that is simply there right. to furnish you with a nice time and isn't trying to hurt you um, they've done a good job yeah. of catering to lots of different play styles i mean yeah. they're, they're sort of the the john favreau if you will of <laughs> uh, game design yeah yeah frictionless and doesn't annoy the snyderverse people um <laughs> yeah. I, I like, mean, I bounced yeah. off it for the same reason that you did, that I, I, I feel, uh, I don't know whether this is just because I think about uh, games design more than I, I should when I play a game, but like, that makes me sound like so that's the most conceited sounding <laughs> humble brag I've ever made. Or maybe I'm just too brilliant for it. Uh, but no, but like, I, I feel like I'm super, super sensitive to whenever the cadence of progress is being set uh, externally to my individual improvement as a player. Um, which I feel very strongly is the case with Hades. Like, I mean, you're just mm. going to be destroyed basically at different points during your progress. And then you just won't take the same amount of damage the next time you do it. And so you'll, you'll pass it. I know that's true of a lot of games, um, but I think other games yeah. it's disguised better or there are other things that you are learning and absorbing along the way. Whereas I feel Hades, there's, there's, there's more repetition than uh, there is learning, I think. I think it. maybe that's the thing. I think maybe it's about... This is a bit of an arch point, so forgive me, but maybe it's like there's a sort of little contradiction in the amount of respect it appears to be showing you as, as a player with agency at any given time. It's like it trusts you to invest in and appreciate and read between the lines of its art and writing, uh, while also kind of assuring you along in a quite a kind of constrained way um, through the game itself, which is probably a really, really good balance to strike. Whereas, um, you know, but I think there's like a slight friction there, which can create the, the, it can create the sense that both things are somewhat illusory, I think, um, that you're almost being duped into like it, which I think I was saying earlier. It's a bit like this. Wow is McDonald's. It kind of knows what it is, I think, right? And when you're in there by yourself, wearing a hoodie and staring into nothingness, you know you're in the void, you know? You opted for it. These are your cold chicken nuggets. You you just want a, a, a great little puck of salty meat. Yeah. Whereas Hades, Hades is like pret-a-manger. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is, it, it is better for you. It is materially better for you. But it has the same parent company. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the, uh, the, the, the point's necessarily <laughs> going. Like, um... I don't know. It's really good. I can understand why it did as well as it did. I just, I felt like maybe this is it. I felt like I knew what it was doing to me and it yeah. didn't want me to know. Whereas I don't think wow cares that I know. I think wow is letting yeah. me roll around in the trash. Whereas Hades is like holding my hair back as I vomit into the loop. Like, I don't know. I'm a bit losing this. Yeah. Metaphor. I mean, I, I think that's, that, I mean, that's, that's almost exactly what I'd say in comparison to it and Spelunky is that uh, Spelunky also doesn't care. <laughs> at all mm. for you as a player it seems and I, I although i'm i'm never going to uh get very far in spelunky and uh i've stopped playing spelunky 2 now pretty quickly like i kind of like it more or at least i admire it more for that honesty mm. i don't know but you know i have no chance of ever completing it whereas i probably do have a good chance of completing hades if i bothered to put in the time but for yeah some reason, it's less appealing to me I think it's, I genuinely think it's such an interesting design thing because I think it's a question of agency. I think it's a question of you 
how much freedom does the player have to determine their own level of success? I think that's fairly like I don't think that is like a general rule for whether a game is good or not, but I think it helps you triangulate what kind of game it is that you're playing, and that illusion can be a tricky one to manage. And it's like, is does the game break when that illusion is shattered? And I don't think it does in in Hades's case, but I think it has a slightly uncomfortable relationship with the genre that it sits in and some of the expectations that come with that. Whereas, for example, for example, in World of Warcraft, this is an example. Started getting into it to the extent that I installed some add-ons to let me see like the damage that everybody's doing. I'm playing a DPS class most of the time, so you want to see how much damage you can kind of squeeze out. And some of those basically forms a leaderboard, and some of that is obviously determined by the current meta and a little bit of personal ability but one thing you notice is that across a span of playstyles, across the different classes the dps average is out in about the same place and that's quite an impressive design feat because it means that they're you know they are calculating they're finding ways to get very very disparate playstyles and ways of doing damage to basically have the same effect in game they're effectively flattening player agency by saying it doesn't matter what you pick what you pick will affect what buttons you press but the output of pressing those buttons would be the same. And when that happens, it's tempting to sort of like feel that the, I don't know, that your player agency means less because it it actually does. And then you have to kind of recalibrate it around like, well, I guess I'm all I'm doing is I'm theming this experience. I'm, I am making some aesthetic choices around a broader experience that I'll be having and a few gameplay ones. And I think that's fine. But I, it's interesting to me the relationship that has with with agency, particularly as you would consider it in in other kinds of RPGs like Elder Scrolls RPGs or or CRPGs, where you desperately want those kinds of decisions to actually matter beneath the hood. Mm. Whereas that service game mindset that I think Hades shares um, requires those decisions not hurt you and not you know it requires that you not be allowed to accidentally set yourself back in some permanent way and that has an that has a tricky relationship with i think the core promise of a roguelike hmm. that uh this uh i've run out of track to put in front of this train now so off the cliff i go Thelma! <laughs> Thelma! <laughs> famously a train at the end of that film <laughs> <laughs> tom what have you been playing i've been playing at remnant from the ashes oh mm. yeah which is a bit of a sleeper hit from um, from 2020, actually. And if you want a co-op game where you just sort of play once and then have a really nice campaign, uh, this is great. It's really strong. It's got really it's really weird third-person shooter where you team up to shoot loads of zombies in an ex- admittedly extremely brown universe. Um, but the you know one of the first weapons I got fired incendiary rounds and then once i'd powered it up it could it doubles as a flamethrower whatever i wanted to and that's a cool weapon just to have at the very start of the game and they're kind of just mm. just loads of like leveling options um it's just like what if the division was sort of declancified and <laughs> kind of uh wrapped in a bit of kind of heresy <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> i was about to say Niles barkley what i mean is Cl- clive barker <laughs> <laughs> I want very, <laughs> more or less the same. Very, Miles very, very least Jericho. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I like how I stopped myself from saying it and I just said it anyway. So. You should have done it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's all kind of just, you know, uh, horrible, bloody, fleshy monsters that you sort of carve up with delicious weapons. Um, 
and uh, it's got little dungeons that you dive into. It's deeply strange. Uh, it's, it's taken early from Dark Souls uh, book in the sense that everyone just sort of talks cryptic nonsense at you. And there's obviously some sort of like enormous occult underpinning to the whole thing that you can't really figure out because you're too busy shooting zombies all the time, which is fine by me. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to sort of like throw it out there. If, if people are looking for games to play with pals and mm. uh, obviously like, you know, Hunt Showdown is, is, is the creme de la creme. But if you're looking for something a bit sillier and a bit more kind of like, you know, a bit quicker and with lots more shooting, then uh, yeah, Remnant is, is really strong. And I think its final expansion came out last year. So you could probably get a whole lot um, for not a huge amount of money on Steam. It's good. I like it. Sounds interesting. Dark Souls with guns is how uh, I've heard it pitched to me previously. It's basically right. Yeah, yeah that's mm. a reasonable way of putting it. it. It's kind of it borrows a lot from like Dark Souls, The Division, um, mm. from loads of different games, but, but somehow like the, the its trappings and its art style and the whole vibe of the thing is its own thing. Um, it's got its own identity, even though it's quite derivative mechanically. Uh, and I think for that reason, it's it's more memorable than lots of games that try to do this. And I, I think like a, a sequel, I don't know how well it's done, but like a, a, a sequel could easily build on that, and it could be, become something quite quite important actually, um, as a kind of almost like a an alternative to Warframe is what I would say. Mm. Ooh, right. So the games you, you compared to it, is it like Dark Souls and structure? A, it's an RPG with an end, or is it like a MMO? Because that's the thing I've always been unsure about. It's basically an RPG with an end, but it's got, uh, but it has like instance dungeons and that sort of thing, but with right. an overworld as well. So it kind of it feels like an MMO at points where you're sort of like exploring and there are puzzles in the environment, um, but then the actual kind of important story points happen in dungeons. That's where you fight the biggest bosses mm. and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so it's got a kind of MMO structure, but it is a, a basically a linear RPG ultimately. There was a there was a VR prequel that is now low is no now released in non VR form huh. um, called like... Kronos Before the Ashes I think which if if you like is is sort of a Dark Souls with guns without guns because uh, it's set in a fancy uh, universe um, mm. which is obviously the same universe but just earlier uh... <laughs> <laughs> they call it the past <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> Oh, the strange dark souls of these new times but with guns but without guns and in the past yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. the future but backwards uh but it's, yeah, it's that... a third person vr game weirdly which you can play uh, without vr so it's just a third person game now okay. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but i'm interested to know if you if you'd uh <laughs> if you played it in vr because i have a hard time conceiving of what a, th- a third person vr game would feel like uh i have i've not played it in vr actually um folks should uh, scroll through the podcast archive and listen to the latest uh, interview I did with uh, Christian Donlan, who recommended Kronos, actually. That's one of his first recommendations as a really oh. cool, interesting VR game to play. Um, I knew I'd heard about it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and I, I had no idea what it was. I, I had no idea it was tied to Remnant. That's wild. Hmm. Now I've got to play that now. Um, but yeah, he, he re-recommended it. He re-rated it, actually. And uh, I have played uh, third-person games in VR, and it's never felt quite right to me. Um, it feels like the person you're controlling is tiny. Uh, in my experience, like they're just about six inches tall, and you're going through a tiny little world. And I, I, it's, it's something weird to do with the perspective, I think, or maybe that's just me, my brain. I'm not sure. Hmm. 
It's funny that the subtitle from the ashes is so vague that even when it was literally used on two different games, you didn't realize that they were part <laughs> That's of the same right. series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's other prequel. Brian Lara ninety six from the ashes. <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's good crack for a, a lockdown game. That's, that's kind of like my mode at the moment. I mean, I've been playing Lego games as well. Mm. Just because I could listen to a, a comedy podcast and sort of mop up Lego bits for no reason. And yeah. then oh, press, yeah. press a button and become a big plastic Incredible Hulk. And it's like, yeah, all right, that's fine. That's all I, yeah. <laughs> that's all I can Good. Really deal yeah, with that is, that is the exact spirit in which I'm playing World of Warcraft. So yeah, right. I'm with you. We're in the same place. Marsh, how are you comforting yourself? Uh, well, <laughs> it's interesting to compare because I've, I've been playing two games. The first, uh, the first one, which is very apt for this particular day, is uh, Suzerain, uh, which is a, a presidential simulation slash visual novel uh, mm. in which you ascend to power in a nineteen a fictional nineteen fifties era state. And I think it's I think it's probably really really good, but. Um, I, have, I just haven't been in the kind of headspace to receive uh, something requiring of any amount of attention whatsoever. <laughs> um, I mean, f- for example, uh, Graham Smith, also of this podcast, and I have apparently signed a death pact to watch all of the Fast and Furious movies in sequence. <laughs> and that's really sort of maxing out my intellectual capacity at the moment. So the idea of, I don't know, setting fiscal policy for a state emerging from the rulership of a military junta uh, and somehow chaperoning it into an era of modernity and globalism. Um, just, uh, it's a little bit too much of a stretch for me right now. <laughs> but um, I think, I, well, actually, I think if I was even able to focus on anything for more than 30 seconds at a time, I think I'd still find it pretty intimidating because it's this, it's not quite like Crusader King's level of granularity. It's its much more on the visual novel end of that spectrum. But there are quite a lot of levers to pull nonetheless. And there's quite a lot of things to keep track of. Um, and th- this is like a fictional country uh, in a fictional equivalent of Europe, and you have to get up to speed with that context really quickly. Um, and the details of that fiction are really significant. It's it's like, um, I mean, it's it's I, I don't know if it's as big, but it's certainly as uh, considered a fiction as say that of Disco Elysium. You know, mm. uh, there's a lot going on there. And, and except instead of being just a useless piece of shit, drunk ass, sorry cop who isn't even in charge of his own bodily functions, you are in charge of an entire country, and it's uh, it's quite a lot to take in. Um, but it does a good job of onboarding you, I think. Uh, and the choices you are presented with feel pretty well contextualised on the whole. I don't know. This, so the, you've played more um, strategy games than I have, both of you actually, but particularly Tom. I wanted to sort of get your your take on this but there's well a little preamble to the to my question but there's a, so there's a few moments where you sort of make these binary choices with seemingly little information and sometimes these feel quite uh irritating because you immediately discover that there's some sort of corollary to your choice that would have made it unattractive and you know because it's a video game every choice just you you know that the chickens will come home to roost in some way as a result of it all the choices just 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 have this potent chicken-based foreboding. I don't know if like 
I don't know how symmetric those decisions are yet. And this is this is my big problem, uh, would be my big problem with it if it manifests, and my frustration with sort of the gamification of politics in general, because to my mind, in reality, policy isn't like this symmetrical choice where everything has upsides and downsides. And, mm. you know, if you do the right thing, there's going to be a sting in the tail. I mean, obviously, you know, good government is difficult and there are drawbacks to do good things. But, you know, actually, the path to progress and morality isn't sort of a coin toss between two completely opaque futures. There are lots of obvious things that we could do to make the world better. And the primary reason we haven't is because it's opposed by a large number of absolute cunts who just want more for themselves. And like to like to Suzerain's credit, it does pre- present the you don't have to play it progressively, but it presents progress as being primarily complicated by having to appease regressive factions. And this is the 1950s in this fictional world. Uh, so it does, but it shares the 19, the mores of the 1950s in our world. So it's very much more conservative world from the off. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like there've been at least a couple of moments where the choices have been sort of artificially constrained to sort of pit ideals against each other. Like, oh, you need to make a choice which benefits the needs of the poor, or will you? Do this thing, which you know reverses the the recession and get the economy out of the shit. And yeah, I mean, obviously in government you do need to thread the needle, and there's there's and worthy causes always need to be juggled. But I feel like here, because it's a game, it does this thing of kind of forcing you to 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 make these kind of particularly painful choices, particularly difficult choices. And I so here's my here's my question that I said I was going to ask you and then didn't for ages. Sorry. Is the vector for feeling for these sorts of politics simulation governance games, is the vector for them feeling more true to life simply complexity? Are there games that that feel more true without being just wildly complicated and granular? Yes, uh, Frostpunk. Oh, mm. uh, that's Good a game show. that does extremely well, and um, every choice you make is a bad choice in some way, and I think that's kind of true of, of policy like all policy is flawed in some way it, it always uh it mm. benefits some people but it always has problems it's always imperfect because human systems are imperfect um and if you thrust that into a bitterly cold survival situation like frostpunk um it's it's enthralling and those decisions really matter and they almost behave like skill trees uh which i much prefer to the typical approach where like a lot of these kind of binary choices that you see pop up in like total war or a lot of strategy games, um, they're also just kind of resource choice choices. It kind of pretends to be a moral choice, but actually you'll get extra points in this bracket instead of this bracket for doing this thing. And so it actually kind of robs it of any real kind of weight, uh, emotional weight or, you know, sense of consequence. Um, mm. And that's one of the reasons why Frostpunk is really, really good, because it actually, uh, actually presents choices and they feel real. I think it sounds like, too grim, though. Oh, it's it is really good. <laughs> it's great, though. So, yeah, I'd like to, I think that's a really good point. I'd like to add a cor- uh, corollary to that, if I can, which is, I think the problem with politics games is they they tend to be about pursuing endings and win states of some kind, and that is not how the world works at all. The good thing about Frostpunk is it's kind of enclosing fiction and its fantasy um, does allow that to exist in a very tangible, very practical way. 
you know, your decisions have this physical effect on the environment in terms of how hot and cold it is, who gets to sleep in a warm house and who doesn't, and what that means to your society. And it's self-contained as a scenario so that there's really clear cause and effect. And there is indeed an end. You want to get to the end of this winter and you will either do that or you will freeze. And that means that, you know, your policies really can boil down in some ways, whereas it, real politics is not about that. And in fact, often the summoning of kind of like goals and endings, the notion of endings, the notion of goals, the notion of um, end states that could be reached is deeply political and almost always a complete fucking lie, basically. Like it's more true, I think, to say that politics is the inaction of values rather than the pursuits of goals. And, you know, um, I, I think setting goals is certainly a part of that, but the notion of like one day attaining a kind of utopian state is probably less helpful than figuring out what values you need to have in order to make proper decisions, like make the best possible decisions you can make uh, day on day. And so, you know, when you have, you know, like, so my argument would be that there probably aren't perfect answers to most questions, but if the decisions are being made out as a set of good values, like, you know, respect for every human being, et cetera, um, you know, um, uh, equality of every kind, then the daily enactment of those values will at least move things in possibly the, the best direction given um, what's possible at the time. And then the role of like activism and, 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 and uh, more radical sides of political thought is to um, pull that, uh, encourage that value set to, to grow and expand and to, to elevate people whose voices would not otherwise be heard. The um, games are about goals, and I think it's kind of incompatible with that. Like games would never be happy to say, "Well, you act." Even though when you make a choice in a game, you traditionally make it based on your values. The frustration comes from the fact that, like, I made the choice based on my values, but I knew that the game was going to use this to, you know, upset my long-term goal in some way because that's about what the game is inevitably about. So yeah, I enact universal basic income, but inexplicably the International Space Station explodes or something. And I, I have to kind right, of yeah. yeah. Um and that trade-off is both unrealistic and I think not where the actual tension of enacting um you know <laughs> political choices actually comes from, which is more about like the establishing of values and actually uh, and disseminating those values and dealing with bad actors who uh don't act on the basis of, uh, you know, some broader ideal, but out of self-interest or some other kind of, um, you know, manipulative thing. I did a um, an interesting game, live game, I forgot what it's called, Mega Game, at the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo last year, when, when there was one, obviously, not last year, 2019, um, which was a simulation of like the American American congressional politics, basically. So players were divided up into into teams and um, representing the various different sort of congressional bodies and um, effectively scored in this labyrinthine way about like who could get resolutions passed and what kind of political keywords were being pushed around. It was very complicated. I played a journalist and basically did fuck all role playing. Um, but I, I became friends with a guy uh, while I was out there, a Canadian guy called Michael, who won almost every one, almost, and say that in inverted commas, almost every mega game we played, we played a couple, regardless of theme, just by relentlessly following a fairly, like a fairly kind of, um, you know, direct, and he's a lovely guy, but direct policy of self-interest. And he basically completely dismantled the US government in that 
game by just making it more about how much political capital he could personally accrue than the kind of broadly agreed upon structure of we spend our political capital in order to accrue points in some more nebulous way. He kind of like completely rejected that values led thing and just made his own bed and effectively destabilized the entire system. And it was brilliant. And it was basically a perfect simulation of an interesting way of rendering politics in a game, even though him doing that kind of broke the game that had been made for him. Um, mm. But I don't think... Tory simulator, 2019. Yeah, basically. And it was really interesting to see. Um, also really interesting that it worked. Also really interesting that the game makers hoped he wouldn't do that, and he did anyway. Um, <laughs> That's and, a lesson about yeah. conventions versus hard rules as well, which is... It is, yeah. Point. I hope you don't do this. Um <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of an aside, but no, that's really interesting. Like, I feel like that's that's a way more interesting tension than the kind of traditional video game. Yeah. Oh, but there'll be a trade-off. You can't look after the most vulnerable without, I don't know, every bluebird in the country has died. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure that that's the way the game is going. It's, it's, uh, it has the the the. You know, it has the different uh, advisors talking in your ears, which suggests that it is going to go in that direction, but it may turn out to be something much more complex. I don't think it is, because there's no kind of explicit goal for you to achieve in this game. Um, so I, I think I think the way it's going to go is it's just going to tell you an interesting story based on your choices. Um, but That's I, not I a do crime. feel... <laughs> I do feel a yen for a for a game that um maybe isn't as grim and punishing as Frostpunk because I do believe that there is, that good things can happen. <laughs> uh and not everything is just uh you, you know ma- making the best possible choices in the worst terrible circumstances. Like I don't think it's that much of a zero sum game. The problem you have is that there are people who are playing it as a zero sum game and you have to find some find some way of dealing with them. Mm. Hard to do uh, without Really good AI, I think. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so the other game I've been playing uh, mm. is is Penko Park. Hmm. Um, That's a very satisfying is, name. Uh, uh, it is. It's. Uh, it's. It's also much more. Uh, it, well, the developer is called Ghost Butter, which is a fucking oh, amazing. That's, name. that's nice. a great name. Who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> if their tagline as a company isn't "Who you're going to churn" or something. <laughs> I will um, work for them and fix it. <laughs> but it's it's definitely much more on, on my brain's level right now than uh, suzerain is. Do you know what the word suzerain means to me, by the way? I don't know if I was just massively ignorant, but I, I, it meant nothing to me. I read it. I looked it up like six months ago, and therefore I've forgotten completely. It's a form of government, right? Uh, yeah, it's sort of like like sovereign, but uh, not quite. Uh, it's quite complicated, so I can tell. Um, so maybe just look it up on Wikipedia rather. Oh, than I thought you knew. We're going to tell me rather than. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I do sort of know. Shall I give it a go? Hang on. Is... Yeah, you, you give it a go. Yes. And you're going to mark me, are you? Oh no! I, I yeah, I, yeah, I am going to mark you. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the well, control so, experiment. <laughs> I, I think it can mean two sort of different things depending on the scale. I think sort of in a singular way, as applied to a single ruler, it just sort of means feudal lord to whom a tithe is owed. But if it's applied to statecraft, and I think it means a state that controls another state, but that other state is otherwise basically internally independent, but you kind of nonetheless have a controlling uh, interest in its foreign policy, for example. So I guess at part in, in at times uh Britain's relationship to India was as a suzerain, 
but um, I only know this from looking up Wikipedia. It was a completely unfamiliar word to me, so I yeah, think that it's is a bit of a strange word to use. Uh, correct for for a, for a title of a game you hope to sell. Um, mm, but that is a cool word, though. It's a lovely word, isn't That's it? Awesome. I was I was hoping that your character would be called Susan Rain, but uh, it mm. isn't. You're called Anton Rain, in fact. <laughs> oh, so but, close. But it's spelt with a Y. It's spelt with a Y. So it's not. They're not even trying to make it into a pun. <sighs> anyway, Penko Park. It's a game about um, taking photographs. You're on on, on this sort of like on rails uh, safari through this abandoned uh, safari park, uh, which is full of weird creatures. And you just, uh, they're all illustrated by um, Eleanor Kopka, who's just a fantastic illustrator. Her style is just really instantly recognizable and really uh, sort of creepy cute. Um, and you take pictures of the animals and you get upgrades uh, that allow you to zoom further or alter course or slow your cart or fire globs of pollen at the creatures, uh, which enrages or delights them. Uh, so that you can then <laughs> photograph them in different states, and that's that's literally all there is to it. Uh, but it's really uh, zen and satisfying. Hmm. It's a bit like Umarangi Generation. I don't know if you played that last year, which is a sort of indie darling, where you another photography game where you sort of roam around these crummy futuristic environments and you sort of tick things off a list of things to photograph. I really liked it, but it was um, it was a bit janky, and I found that the photographs that you were sort of required to take were often the most boring photographs you could take. Like you had to really get up in in the in the face of an object and take a quite a graceless picture of it in order to to check it off the list. Um, whereas I think here, although there's there's a lot less scope for varied photographs, you don't have filters or other interesting things, and the entire experience is much more controlled uh, because you're literally on rails. But nonetheless, the photographs you end up taking show off the critter's artwork much better. Hmm. Um, and so somehow, even though it was a lot simpler and a lot less ambitious, I found it weirdly more satisfying, even though, you know, uh, I think of myself as an artistic person. Uh, so I'd quite like to take, you know, fancy photographs, but actually just taking photographs that by their nature inevitably neatly framed the creatures was was uh, somehow more pleasing to me. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's really cute and kooky. Uh, and uh, I'm very little chance that I'm going to derail a major economy by playing it. So that's uh, nice. good. Is it spooky or is it cute? Mm, cute. It's definitely on the cute side. I mean, it's it's only only passingly kind of uh, spooky. Cool. Good to know. I think Pip would like this. Oh that's yes, she would. Saying. She would definitely, absolutely, definitely a Pip game. Hmm. 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 Sorry, sometimes I just stop making grunts that you would hear if you clicked on me. Hmm. That's the noise I'd make. Shall we um, silence the hell resonance of our own skulls by uh, going to questions from questions? We can and should do and will, but I understand that you've got some really uh, spicy beef to take up, uh, Marsh. Some 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 real. Uh, a pretty, uh, you know, uh, a pretty contentious uh, bone to pick, a, a domino spicy beef of a feud uh, on the offing with, um, hang on, what is it, with the, with the Nazis. Oh, yeah. Uh, not a fan, generally, but also... Slow down! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, it occurred to me when we were talking earlier, or, or rather, it occurred to me just after we moved on from our discussion of uh, Indiana Jones and uh, Wolford Stein, etc., that one of the things that I that I latterly have come to uh, dislike about the presentation of the Nazis in both of those fictions is that they um, pursue occult uh, mysteries and, uh, you know, attempt to attain them. But unlike in reality, those occult mysteries are true. Mm. And I think that sort of does a disservice to the fact that these people were fucking idiots. Like, the whole whole thing that is absurd about the fact that the Nazis, you know, uh, promoted fucking in graveyards so that your unborn child would absorb the ghost of a dead hero and the fact that they thought that the world was the inner core of a larger hollow planet, etc., etc., is because those things are dumb, and they are dumb. Mm. But as soon as you say, oh, no, actually, ghosts are real, then um, then it becomes less dumb, and uh, thus um, they are less dumb. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, yeah, I guess more like the, the men who stare at goats. <laughs> anyone seen that film? Um, which is about secret experiments, people who think that... Uh, they can uh, communicate thoughts with goats and walk through walls and they do this by concentrating very hard and then just walking into walls and uh <laughs> obsessed for the entire film and um the, whole, the point of the film is these people are idiots <laughs> uh, yeah. and yeah that's, that's certainly a lot of uh nazi experimentation was like that yeah it, it is kind of important because i think you know like not to get real again god knows please return me to the trash where my trash is but like a lot of you know that that kind of fascinating horrifying silly banal awful fucking footage that the new yorker got from the capital rights um where that is a you know a uh, lethal violation of you know decency and also moment to moment in that footage deeply fucking dumb and the people right. perpetrating it are clearly dipshits and are possessed of a particular kind of like wide-eyed dipshitishness that I have seen in other contexts. They're not, not nothing so traumatic nor so terrible or lethal, but nonetheless, it's both kind of the, there's definitely not definitely not anything even close to pathos there, but there's something kind of like disarming about how dumb it fucking is at the same time as it being so awful. And sometimes you see that pointed to, to go like, well, you know, thank God the 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 Nazis of our era are, are these idiots because no, but they were then always they can't those idiots, and that's exactly the point. You go back, mm. and it's like you know, like you know, OG, you know, German Nazism of the middle of the twentieth century is exactly as dumb as if the flat earthers and the anti-vaxxers gained uh, control of the apparatus of state and used it to murder people. It's exactly that awful and that dumb. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know. How, and this is the thing. I don't know how you tell a compelling Indiana Stone story with that as its fundamental thesis. Um, <laughs> other than like a middle-aged Indiana Jones, like screaming through Germany, holding up an ancient vase, screaming, it's just a vase. 
but like, <laughs> like is it, you get yeah. to the end of the game and they, they open up the Ark of the Covenant and then Indiana Jones just points in it and says look it's fucking fuck all it's just fucking it's dust a, it's a twat. box you idiots <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> then he uh, blows them up with a rocket launcher yeah exactly um, so I'd enjoy that the, the Nazi is so upset his face melts off like, only... <laughs> I'm so <laughs> wrong uh... <laughs> exactly <laughs> I've been shadow banned uh... <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> cancelled um yeah i don't know how you make compelling fiction about that i was thinking about that as well that you know like it's so kind of drab and dumb and conformist the reality of it but our fiction always tends to create sort of um strident deeply idiosyncratic nazi villains and that is not like the face of that movement Mm. at all so like it would be much more accurate for the new Indiana Jones film to be about a man trying to stop the raiding of sites by a bunch of extremely dumb PE teachers. <laughs> I tell you what, though, a, a film that does manage to sort of uh, uh, make the the farce of it real and also horribly lethal um, is, you know, another uh, totalitarian state. But uh, the death of Stalin. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Because that that is an absurd situation for for people to find themselves in, and the the comedy of it is is played up, but it's also, you know, never unshackled from the fact that uh, horrendous horrendous crimes were committed against people and humanity at large by that uh, by that those bunch of bozos, basically. I will say this for machine games. Actually, just something that occurred to me is one of the nice things about the Wolfenstein mythos that they set up in their games and i i say this with some caution because i'm not a person who can say whether this is appropriate or not but one of its and this is like i guess spoilers ish spoilery for the first Mm. game is uh so uh, but it's quite an old game at this point is that the the kind of the the the, the sort of occult it's it's kind of magic but more more like occult technology that the nazis are trying to take advantage of is expressly like Hebrew in origin, it's Jewish. And part of the thing they're trying to do is erase its the truth of its provenance so that they can claim it. And I see, I think that's I think that's a, a difficult thing for them to pull off because it yeah. then it then supposes that the uh the Jews aren't a scapegoat. And that is, I mean, that's the real tragedy of all of these nationalist, uh ethno-nationalist movements, is that they find scapegoats and they they completely you know they disgustingly persecute blameless people but if you say oh but actually this blameless people were really the harbingers of an ancient technology that they coveted and kept for themselves then you kind of yeah you're kind I, of I think, doing the yeah i think there's not the tenor they shoot for but i agree that's kind no. of a danger of where they end up like it's used i think the attempt is to expose the hypocrisy with which that kind of racism is leveraged by yeah fascism but i agree that like you know it's it's not necessarily it's it's the it's the time old time honored x-men problem of x-men being um you know stand-ins or, or metaphors for a variety of persecuted groups depending on the time depending on the storyteller and depending on the x-man or x-person um but also actually being dangerous magic people with superpowers that get lots of people killed. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And that is, you know, I, I think there's a storytelling device to leverage there. And I think it can be used to combat fascism, particularly if you're, 
if your story must have that kind of uh, tropey um, matinee kind of occult beat at the core of it, but I agree it's something that's tough to navigate appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I said anyway. That we'd avoid the hell resonance, but actually I went straight for the, the ultimate hell resonance. Sorry, right, um, I'm just going to have to eat more uh, grey nuggets after this to make the brain <laughs> go quiet. Um, but speaking of making making uh, the, the the noise inside go shh, uh, Scott writes, Hi all. In the most recent episode, Tom F. mentioned that he was playing Monster Train while watching the Mission Impossible films, with him actually turning his attention to the films throughout, not just listening. I know the question of what games go well with podcasts the way around comes up a lot. What games complement watching films on another monitor? He goes on to make a point about uh, Genshin Impact, saying that uh, the character switching mechanic most reminded me of Dark Cloud on the PS2, similar action-based combat too, and not to spoil things too much, but you definitely do get more elements beyond the starting set later on, Winky Face. Thanks for years of entertainment. All the best, Scott. So the question there is, what games complement watching films on another monitor? I'm a big weirdo and don't like having more than one monitor, so I can't really answer this. Uh, my, I watch, I, sorry, sorry, Bosh. Uh, my first question is, did he say Heil at the start? He said, hi all. I appreciate where we were immediately <laughs> before this. I, right. I was, I was primed to hear that. Uh, sorry, carry on, Bosh. Yeah, no, it's quite <laughs> Just right. Thank you for asking me to clarify. I'm glad you did so. He said, hi all. Um, I, 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 I do watch films on my laptop whilst I do other things on my, my actual monitor. Um, and it's i mean no, the, the mental state i'm in is is interesting in a terrible way because although i do have all like a, a zero uh second attention span now i find that i need to inundate myself with lots of things that take up my attention simultaneously like i can't really watch a film now unless i also have twitter and i'm doing something else and maybe drawing at the same time i, I don't know why i think it's probably just to kind of uh try and exclude parts of my brain that would otherwise try and talk to me and say something that was bad um so in order to do that and suppress uh normal brain functions as every healthy person does i um i will uh i will i will play something like noita which i find i can i, I don't play it with any serious intention of doing well in it but i find it's quite a nice thing to die in <laughs> abstractly um uh <laughs> I also, uh, <laughs> in fact, I was playing Penko Park in this this same vein while watching more of the fucking awful Fast and Furious franchise, um, <laughs> because that is that's just what I do. You don't now. have and to do it. You don't. Have I do. I do. I'll disappoint Graham if I don't, and that's the thing I most fear in this world. <laughs> um, tear down. Also, I I, I just I, even though, um, and my love for that game is well known. I actually just play it in a more mindless way. Uh, just smashing shit basically whilst uh, whilst watching a film. Sometimes I've also been trying to learn Go, but I've completely failed. So oh, I'll play you at Go. You've got to tell me. You've got to tell me how it works because I've been I, I I downloaded a version of it which was quite well reviewed in the Steam store, um, and it has a tutorial. But then I played my first game and the AI placed a piece and all of my pieces instantly disappeared. I have no idea why. <laughs> That's not how the game like, works. <laughs> what? That's it's just deleted up. all my pieces. 
No, that's, is that not a thing? No, that's not okay. a thing at all. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, I don't understand unless, what's they, going on. Unless they surrounded all your pieces. That's how you kill pieces. Well, apparently they must have done, but I don't understand the rules by which that would have been decided to be the case. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, anyway teach uh, me, Tom. Yes. Teach me. Yeah, I'll happily teach anyone go. It's great. Yes, we will have to both watch Fast and Furious at the same time, of course. Oh, yeah. But, um... We'll do the three, two, one <laughs> press play thing. And yeah, yeah. Just get, right. get it going. Tokyo Drift. Nice. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. It's really weird. I have the opposite reaction to lockdown. I can no longer consume multiple kinds of media at the same time. I used to be able to, to some extent, probably less than most. But now I kind of need the thing I'm currently doing to have ended. I need the clock to ideally have hit like a nice round number of some kind. I'll accept a 10-2, but I prefer a square on the hour. And then I will initiate the new activity and do nothing else, whether it's a film or a TV show or a game. And I do this in the maximum hope of being absorbed into it. Like if I am listening to like a podcast and playing WoW at the same time, which seems like a perfectly normal thing to do, I find myself getting like squashed in the revolving door of my attention, um, awkwardly trapped until the security man comes and pries me out of it. So I just can't do it anymore. And so that's my answer to why I can't answer this question. I'm, I'm totally with Martian, but I just sort of like swarm my brain with stuff uh, to the point where it obliterates my sense of self. For an hour, <laughs> and that's, that's uh, is is it I healthy? Mean, no. <laughs> is it necessary? We're all it. In the current moment, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I find that uh, I I play a lot of played a lot of Diablo three while having stuff, like a lot of anime on the second screen, um, which is kind of the lowest of the low, isn't it? Of of both mediums, almost. <laughs> it's always. Sort of like matching just uh, the baseline, uh, I, I, lowest I common denominator. A lot of war painted on a lot of Warhammer while watching Rick and Morty, so it's fine. There, there's no judgment in this space. Yeah, that, that's good. I mean, I've been going through uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, which is actually a very well made, that's, that's a good well told, well told show. It's very good. Um, uh, while also drawing goblins <laughs> in a tiny sketchbook. Um, so I guess like we will get by, right? <laughs> we will get by. <laughs> As we continue to answer the question how you live in, uh, we move on <laughs> to a question about a game. Thank God. This is from uh, Thomas, who writes, Dear Crib and Crayon, uh, am I doing it right? Yes, you are. You wrote some words. No one's going to judge you. On the most rep recent episode, 354, you talked at length about action RPGs with some focus on Diablo 3. Made me think that I don't think I've ever heard mention of Grim Dawn on the pod. The ARPG at the opposite end of the spectrum to Torchlight. Create software have been quietly working away, updating and creating DLC for this game. I think it will both fascinate and frustrate CNC panelists. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. panel. So, that uh, makes exactly. sense. That's Yolo's panel. Yeah. Um, as it is very mechanically and intricate, but also has issues such as the OTT health regen. <coughs> Highlights for me are the way each character is a combination of two classes, kind of like Master Train, and it's also tweaked by a constellation of passives and proc skills accessible to all classes. There are meta builds espoused by the community, but I find it's easier than most games uh, to come up with a viable build that is not the meta. For example, most people are making a Kabbalist, a Necromancer, ex-cultist, sounds cool, that use pets, but my build uses none and works fine. So I guess my question is, what do you humans think of Grim Dawn? That's from Thomas, and I believe the answer will come from Thomas. Hello, I've played Grim Dawn, and it's very good. I like it a lot. I'm not sure why I haven't talked about it actually. Um, it's just a it's a really pretty grim dark action RPG as described. 
And I think the dual classing uh, that's described in the question here uh, comes from Titan Quest, which is another brilliant, huge uh, RPG that you could sort of break by dual classing um, in the in particular ways. Uh, so Question Asker might enjoy that as well. It's a bit bit sunnier. Uh, it's an old game, but it's 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 bright and cheerful, and you can summon loads of stuff if you want to. Um, the one thing, the, the reason I stopped playing Grim Dawn actually was that the the starting area is like a giant horseshoe, and this is like the pettiest complaint ever, but I can't fucking stand horseshoe maps. <laughs> uh, and I, there's mm. something about it, like, uh, this is true of, um, there's a horseshoe, famous uh, battlefield map, there's basically a giant horseshoe with sea, ocean in between, two prongs. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm just like, I just want to go across. I don't have to. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> why, why can't I go across? Let me, let me go across. And You're like wait, a magnet. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Um, so I, I was sort of like go to the bottom of the magnet, the bottom of the horseshoe, and I was like, "Oh, I've got a, another ten levels before I can get to, get to the next bit of the horseshoe." Why can't I go across? And that's uh, that's my main criticism. I'm not actually deep enough into the game to uh, comment on the actual systems themselves and uh, health regen and excessive kind of uh, perhaps boring, grindy uh, things you get into in the later game. But um, I just want to go across. Come on, <laughs> and that's that's what I have to say about it. Yeah. Good. Is that is, Grim, <laughs> is Grim Dawn the one that looks like it could have been a Warhammer game but isn't? How do you mean? Did you play one, like a witch finder looking? Like a dude? witch hunter in a big hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty much yeah, it. Yeah. It just seems quite Warhammery to me, but isn't? I yeah. thought it was. I thought it was a Warhammer game. Is it not? It's not. Oh. Well, blow me down. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's not grim dark. It's grim dawn. Yeah, there, yeah. exactly. The, the grim darkness is grim darkest before the grim dawn. Fuck. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, That's all the questions we've got time for, as it happens, Excellent. because the uh, the other question we received is directly and specifically for Tom Francis, so much so that we couldn't. Um, answer it even if we momentarily pretended to be him. If you'd like to send us another question, you can do so at questions at crayandcrowbar.com or you can tweet us at crayandcrowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos for YouTube. And you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is, sensibly enough, youtube.com slash crayandcrowbar. And thanks as always to our lovely Patreon backers. You can back us too at <coughs> patreon.com slash crayandcrowbar or you can simply join our wonderful Discord community they are lovely. The link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Chris Thurston. Please don't tell anyone how I live. And I've been Tom Senior, at Mr. Tom Senior on Twitter. And uh, I, I've been on a mission to swear less. And that's gone out the window this week. So apologies to anyone who has this uh, on out loud with children around. I'm very sorry. <laughs> you don't mean that. No, I don't. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well done, America.